Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And this is part two of our Villain Bracket March Madness. And this will also be the episode where at the end we will talk about our triumphant villain and how they might fare against our triumphant final girl from a few episodes ago, Sydney Prescott. If you haven't listened to the first part of the villain bracket, definitely do that. We give a lot more context as reminders regarding who these villains are and what their powers are. We'll still be talking about that in this episode, but not as much. So if you need a reminder, definitely go back and listen to that episode from last week. Otherwise, buckle your seatbelts. Yes. And as a reminder, All Idea Inspiration goes toward the Dead Meat podcast. They do March Madness every year. I've also linked their March Madness episodes in our description. So if you want to go listen to theirs, absolutely go right ahead. But yeah, this is episode four of four of our March Madness series. And that'll close out our March content. So let's get into our semifinals. Okay. So first, we have our winners from the Kid Division last week, Esther from Orphan against Umbre and Pluto from Us. Here's the thing. Umbre and Pluto, I think, are much more physical, fast runners. We know that that is Umbre's specialty. She even gives Zora a head start at one point. She's very confident that she'll be able to catch up with her, track her down and kill her. Pluto, I don't remember being as physically fit in that way. He's also younger, but still pretty vicious. He's a fire and starter. That's right. Where we don't see a ton of physicality from Esther. We see a lot of willpower when she breaks her own arm. She's confident in her ability to use handy dandy weapons like hammers and a gun. So I feel like she's a little bit more confident with weapons, but Umbre and Pluto have, I don't know, their specialties. They're kind of like, you know, the Incredibles. <laughs> The Incredibles are a family and they have like a set of powers that each of them uses pretty religiously. I feel like that's what Umbre and Pluto do. Like Umbre is the runner, the tracker, and Pluto is the fire starter. But we do see Esther also start a fire. Remember the treehouse fire where that kid ends up being on life support and then she goes into his fucking ER room and then tries to suffocate him. So we do- He has no chill. No, no chill whatsoever. So we do kind of see, besides running- see Esther employ at least Pluto's power to a very effective degree. Whereas Pluto, because Jason is smart and knows that Pluto is his tether, is able to walk backwards and in a sense kills Pluto because Pluto mirrors his judgment and ends up walking backwards into that fire where I don't know what happens to Umbre. Yeah, I don't remember. Like, it is interesting that Pluto kind of has a hack. And Esther is smart. I could see her figuring that out. Umbre. She is the one that jumps on the hood of the car when they're driving. And then Zora is driving, slams on the brake, and sends Umbre flying into the trees. Oh, yeah. And she gets impaled on a branch. Yes. That is how she dies. Wow, I cannot believe we forgot that because that was epic. And that's the scene where Addie goes as if to kill her, but doesn't actually kill her, just kind of watches her die. It's kind of a weird, tender moment. I think that foreshadows more of a connection between the two of them, would-be connection. So interesting that it kind of took a car, the help of a vehicle, to best her. Umbre is definitely, I think, a little bit more tricky to beat than her brother because of her speed and ferociousness. I mean, she's pretty unrelenting. However. Esther does throw Maxine in front of a car and that oh, and that's how she ends up killing the nun. I'm not trying to like best for Esther here, but for everything that Umbre and Pluto can do, 
Esther has proven that she's at least done to some degree. And she's older. Again, we have to think of the idea True. that Umbre and Pluto are tethers. So they are only invested in so far as they get Jason or Zora, where Esther is this 32-year-old woman in this eight-year-old body. Physically, I do think the tag teaming of Umbre and Pluto could probably overtake Esther. But again, we have seen Esther overtake grown adults. And she has, I think, the intellectual aspect on her side, too. Not that Umbre and Pluto don't, but we don't see them working as much as intellectual powers as we see Esther. She seems like she kind of has all of her boxes checked. Esther is an intellectual, but what we see of the tethers is they don't really speak the language. Red is really the only one who speaks. So Esther can't really be effective in the intellectual sense True. if Umbre and Pluto aren't there to perceive it because they're not human. They're tethers. But again, I can't get past that Umbre and Pluto would have any motivation to go after Esther. I don't know. I mean, if we were looking at just one of the siblings, the tether siblings against Esther, I think that she could best them individually. But it's that pairing that makes it tricky. I feel like in this case, I'm going to look at stats. I feel like Esther's high kill count already And she does have a type of victim, but she has a universality of victims. Like she will go after who she needs to go after to get what she wants. I feel like that makes her a little bit more of a threat, even though she's not as fast as Umbre or not as gifted with fires as Pluto. We do see her use her physicality and fire to still get what she wants or aim for what she wants in some capacity. And we see her use weapons as well. I'm okay with moving Esther on. Okay. That one's hard, though. That one's hard, though, because it's almost one that I would like to see play out (laughs) because Esther is not a likable villain, in my opinion. So it's kind of hard moving her on. (laughs) But again, I feel like statistically with her age and her experience, I do think that it's her. We also don't see Umbre and Pluto working together ever. That might change things too. Like if we ever actually saw them working together as a team, instead we kind of just see them moving as a familial unit, but working independently. So if we saw more of a dynamic, I think it would be easier to envision them besting Esther, but I don't know if they have that. I think it just comes down to Esther's real lived experience that she's just Mm. a kid, but she's not a kid and she just has experience. And if her forte is killing adults, then to me, these children, (laughs) even if they're not your traditional children, would kind of be like a cakewalk to her. Yes. The children that we see here interact with in the movie also seem like a cakewalk to her. I mean, Maxie gives her a run for her money there at the end, but it gets close. And she does break that Bo Peep hating girl's leg. Yes. All right. I feel fine. I think Esther is one hell of a villain. I think moving her on is okay. But Umbre and Pluto are a team I would not want to meet. (laughs) Correct. So that moves us on to the winners from our Mystical Being division from last week. Black Phillip from The Witch versus the entity from It Follows. (laughs) The entity from It Follows travels from person to person via sexual contact. And of course, Black Philip from The Witch is a goat or the devil presenting as a goat. <laughs> the only way I see the entity being effective here is if we are following the age old mythos of a coven of witches that not only do they represent an alternative religion, but they also represent that alternative sexuality, queer ish lifestyle. 
So let's say the gathering of the witches at the end where they're ascending into the air is also an orgy. We see no evidence of that in the Vivich, but if we're thinking about witches as this stand-in for alternative culture and alternative ways of life, I don't know that that coven doesn't fuck each other. I don't know. There is also strong lore surrounding witches that they engage in sexual activity with the devil. I watched this video that's, it's recommended. It gives background information about witches, not only in the colonies, but also in Europe. And there's strong lore that witches often like kiss the devil's anus. (laughs) So, I mean, specifically a variety of sexual acts. But here's the thing. It's like the question, what came first, the chicken or the egg? What came first, the devil or the STI? Because if we're also thinking about this in a traditional sense, because we do have a very traditional literal take on some biblical elements and some Christian storytelling in The Witch, I feel like STIs are considered very devilish. They are for corrupt folks who have sex outside of marriage or who do not live in the light of Christ. And if that's the case, right, if this entity is a very devilish entity, don't you think the devil would have the power to stop it or control it, send it out? I don't know. I mean, it might. Or would it ever make its way back to the devil? Like, has there just been so many people... Has the earth populated to such a degree that the devil is patient zero, but there are just so many people having sex that the entity is just never actually going to make it back to the source. And that's when the world would end. If the entity and the devil were to actually go after each other, because if devil is patient zero, because that's the thing It's like, you're right. Where does the entity form from? When does the entity form from? Because even if the entity were to have formed in 2014, when It Follows came out, it's never making its way back down the chain all the way to the devil. Like there will be people (laughs) that fuck. People fuck. Begs the question, is there only one strain of the entity or are there various strains of the entity working globally at once? Gonorrenentity. Chlamydia entity. (laughs) Syphilicity. Chlamydia-esque, gonorrhea-like entity. (laughs) Do all roads lead to Rome? Do all entities lead to the devil? I don't know. I just, that's the way I look at it. This entity feels very devilish, very sinful, very entrenched in shame and punishment. And those ideas just make me think of traditional ideas of the devil But can the devil be killed? Because we only see the entity killing human-like forms. That's true. So then, yeah. So then that brings us back to the goat. Is the goat the devil in a form? Is it a, I believe you said a conduit of the devil. So is it directly related to the devil? Could the entity just kill the goat? I don't know. This is hard. (laughs) We're asking questions that we're not given necessarily the information we would need to answer. I feel like... Even if the entity were to chop down the devil's supply, the devil would just get more people. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I feel like no matter what, I know that we're trying to judge this in the context of a street fight, but I don't know (laughs) that the entity would ever get the Uber to the street fight. I feel like the Uber would just be going all around town except the arena. It would just be like, oh, the devil's booked up next week. We can fight next week. Oh, wait, no, it's next month because it needs to go through. It has a system. It has an order that it needs to abide by. Let's say that it gets stuck on somebody like Jay, who just keeps evading it and running away and and getting stuck on the same person. I think it's Black Phillip. I think so, too. And even if you just reminded me, even if it got all the way down the line to the devil and we're looking at like the forms that the entity took in It Follows versus Black Phillip. We only see the entity take on human forms. Now, some human forms that are stronger and more intense than others, but Black Phillip killed a man in The Witch. And so I do think that just as a goat, I think Black Phillip could stand a chance, at least against fending off the entity. So yeah, I agree. Black Phillip. Wow. Very. <laughs> Who would have thought? Black Who would have thought? <laughs> so that means we're going to see Black Phillip against Esther. <laughs> Wait, I am? Why wow, did we I'm do this? <laughs> I know. I don't know, but I, I'm excited to talk about that one. So that takes us into the winners of our cult division from last week, the Harga from Midsummer versus Fret Boys from Black Christmas. Similar reasoning from before, the old matriarch is going to get a bunch of menstrual blood and a bunch of pubes, feed these boys. These boys are going to fuck the Harga because they're hot Swedish women. Uh-huh. And then yep. they're going to get all their new blood. Yep. The frat boys will be frat boys. Look, they're going to piss on the magic log. Yep. That's they're, it. You know, like they're going to be disrespectful because of course they are. They're not going to respect that the Harga are a matriarch because they are. They're going to get as far as to like fuck the Swedish women, which is what the Harga wants. And then they're going to be right. dispatched. They're going right. to be put in bear costumes. That was the quickest. I mean, I, that was brilliant. That's I it. see it. Excellent. That's it. Excellent news. Okay, goodbye, frat boys. Moving on. Witch bitch division. Our winners from last week, we have the witch from the witch and the ballet coven from Suspiria. So one witch versus many witches. Yeah. The witch from the witch. The witch. We see her exercise power and pull some interesting tricks, like making a baby disappear from right in front of her sister when she was playing peekaboo with him. We see her exercise power in that she is not at all timid when it comes to killing a baby and eating it to restore her youth. You know, we see that hole in the barn roof that alludes to perhaps a broomstick ride or a flight through the sky in the night after she kidnaps the twins or eats the twins. I'm not sure what she does with them, but they're gone. So we see this power. We see this drive, but we don't really see like a lot. I feel like some of it's left to the imagination, whereas the coven, we know that they can possess. We saw them kill dogs. We saw them kill people. We know that the head witch mistress can shoot lightning from her fingers. (laughs) Like, I don't know. And that's just one of them. But there's like all of them. So I, I don't know if one witch, if this witch, the witch could stand up against the ballet coven. I just, I don't know. Seems to me that the witch herself only has sovereignty over children. 
very much like Sanderson's sister. Like uh. when they need to dispatch the parents, that's when Black Philip comes in. Black Philip is the one that takes the father down and is the one that incarnates itself into the crow that pecks at the mom's tit the entire time. Right. Mm-hmm. And Black Philip is even the one who needs to convince Thomason. And we, see that that's the case because Thomason has approached womanhood. She's gotten her period. She's ascended from that child state. But we only see the witch taking power over Mercy and Jonas and Caleb and Samuel, the baby. Whereas we see the Suspiria coven have a bunch of young adults. It's Susie. Like, you know, they're all like kind of college age girls. So something tells me their reach is farther and there's more of them. Their magic is very different. So I feel like for that reason, yeah, the Suspiria cult has to best the witch in this situation. I agree. I did not expect the Suspiria coven to get this far. Me either. I did not. But They're a dark I, horse. They are, much like Jill in our <laughs> just like Jill. Girls episode. <laughs> Into our out of this world division. Our winners from last week were Mary Beth and Slugs from the faculty and the Cenobites from Hellraiser. This is another tricky one where we are not looking at villains that exist in the same universe. We have two villains that exist in different universes, neither of which includes Earth. So what? (laughs) It's really tricky. Do we remember, I'm trying to think if this is revealed in sequels or if we learn the origin story of the Cenobites in the first Hellraiser. I don't know if we do or that we do. I don't think we do. Because, I mean, I think I know tangentially that like every Cenobite starts as a human being Mm, and then mm -hmm. ends up being like sucked into the box and sucked into another universe. And like they kind of gain that identity through their torture and, and whatnot. Whereas, you know, Mary Beth is not of this world, but I feel as though her sole purpose is to initiate and is to spread, whereas the Cenobites is to torture. Like, they aren't necessarily looking to recruit. I think they can recruit. And like, that's the thing. I know that in later movies, like, that is part of their game. But in this one, they just want to punish. Like, they want to punish Kirstie. They want to punish Frank. They want to punish people because they get, like, a sick, twisted pleasure out of inflicting pain. Whereas Mary Beth isn't as invested in the pain. She's invested in creating a world where, if you really look at the thesis statement of her tangents, it's like, you won't feel like an outsider. You'll feel accepted. Like it feels very utopian in a weird, strange way where it's like, we're going to create a world where you don't feel bad about yourself. Where Hellraiser is like, I want you to feel like filth. I want you to feel like my underling. You know what I mean? Like they're like these weird degradation demons. It's kind of part of what we talked about last week when we saw Mary Beth against the wire aliens. She has a very human influence. Like her rhetoric is very centered on exploiting insecurities that young teens in America might face. And that's what she uses to help recruit folks for her alien mission. Whereas the wire aliens were super localized and we agreed that their reach just wasn't as strong. 
and Mary Beth's little slugs might do some digital damage to their infrastructure, making them triumphant. I'm asking the same question about the Cenobites. Like, would her little alien things be able to infiltrate the Cenobites? Like, they're not human bodies, and I doubt they're hydrated. (laughs) They don't look hydrated. And we know that those little slugs like water. So I don't know if they would live. Or even if we're just looking at Mary Beth, I don't know, like, can the Cenobites be killed? I haven't seen a Cenobite be killed, so I don't know how they are killed if they're already kind of dead. That's my impression, is that they're already kind of living in a plane of existence that's between life and death. Like, their human form has died, so if Mary Beth's MO is humans, then that's not who she's going to reach. But also, the Cenobites are bound by the box. So that's something we have to think about is that the Cenobites only show up when they're kind of summoned by this box. So who's to say that Mary Beth can't get the box and just trap them like Kirstie did? Or is the box part of the gameplay or are we just assuming that she's going hand to hand with Butterball and Deep Throat and Pinhead and Chatterer? For me, it's just so hard because I don't know that that Mary Beth has proven that she can inhabit more than human and the Cenobites aren't human. To inhabit in order to triumph. I mean, that's the thing. She could turn into her ugly, weird, huge, amphibian slug self. But I don't know that the Cenobites just wouldn't get those chains that come out from the ground. You You're know what I mean? Right. All those they have to chains. do is kill her. They could just summon the chains. They don't even have to touch her. They don't even have to physically fight. Literally, like the chains would just pop out of the ceiling and the ground and then just like rip her apart like they did with Frank. Yeah. Okay. I think it has to be the Cenobites then. Okay. Okay. I'm okay in my the head, I was thinking, I was like, well, they're not really violent. Like. They're really good at gaslighting and all this stuff. But then I'm, I forgot about the claws. We see them summon those claws a lot. And they don't even have to go near a person to do that. And as a slug or a human form, Mary Beth would be fucked. And even if there's a bunch of people there, the chains and claws could still grab her. Well, you want to know what I'm thinking about? What? You know how like in the stadium scene where Elijah Wood is running and trying to crush the Mary Beth in her slug form against the bleachers? I'm imagining Mary Beth in her slug form going against the cart that chases after Kirstie in the hallway in the hospital. The one where the eyes are on the front and then the body is just like running it. And I'm imagining them like going into like a hall brawl. Like those two just like meeting in the middle of a shark corridor and figuring out who wins. Mary Beth might lose this fight, but she would probably be recruited by the Cenobites to be like one of the options on the lament configuration. Yeah. Because she's so scary. She already looks like she could be a Cenobite when she's in her natural form because of how gooey and freaky and phallic she looks. I think she'd be an excellent addition. I agree. Okay. The Cenobites take it home for me. Mm -hmm. Their calm, cool, collected way of triumphing, I think, is an asset. So then that takes us to the Zoom ghost from Host versus the Poltergeist from Poltergeist. Here's the thing. The Poltergeist is location bound. True. We talked about this with Laura Barnes, but Laura Barnes was a entity Whereas the Zoom ghost, very much like Gemma conjured, is a mask. And we don't know who's behind the mask at any given point. 
like the way that is her name Celine the medium from host the way that she had described it was because you made up a story of an identity that does not exist in real life you are holding up a mask to the shadow realm and you are pretty much inviting anybody who wants to put on the mask to come through and manifest so we don't actually know who is the one that's tormenting this group of friends because Gemma conjured an incorrect spirit whereas the poltergeist is location bound, but it is an accumulation of a lot of spirits because we see multiple skeletons in the pool. We know that the house is built on a graveyard. It's not just a spirit. It's a accumulation of spirits because even at the end, as the family is escaping, caskets are shooting out of the front lawn and bodies are just falling out and piling out. So it's a collection of very angry spirits of like, you built a house on my home. Like that, what are you doing? Like all that kind of stuff. Whereas the mask, we don't know who's wearing it at any given time, but we can presume it's one and it can only exist in the spaces should the call continue. But it's having very real consequences in multiple spaces. But also the poltergeist doesn't end up killing anybody. The Zoom Ghost does. The Zoom Ghost kills many people. Everyone survives in poltergeist. The Zoom Ghost is fucking crazy. Yeah. It's kind of like the question of would the poltergeist have more to fight for if they're defending their home ground? But it's also like the Zoom ghost has no pull to this location other than seeing a mask that they could fill and manifest. And they just decide that they're going to kill everybody. Like they have nothing to gain, nothing to lose, just a spirit from who knows where seeing an opportunity to wreak havoc. I think that's really scary. (laughs) If we have these ghosts or these entities fighting the zoom ghost i don't know i mean we see it take hold over humans we don't see it open portals or reanimate skeletons like it doesn't have that power so even though it's very scary and violent the poltergeist still might be more powerful because of what it demonstrates and because it is a compilation of many many spirits instead of just one Yeah, I feel like there's multiple dimensions at play because there's the multiple dimensions that the poltergeist is able to take Carol Ann, take a full human that is still living and throw it in another dimension where it still exists. (laughs) I'm also just thinking that like poltergeist came out in the 80s. And (laughs) and the internet and video chat wasn't a thing, obviously. Is it one of those things? Does the Zoom ghost even have the ability to speak poltergeist's language where it's like... I have my iPhone. And they're like, what? <laughs> well, okay. This is classic, right? Yeah. A portal. It's classic. You know, haunting a family via. There's a clown doll that strangles oh, yeah. a kid. There's the tree that almost eats a kid. It can take the form of anything. Whereas the zoom ghost can exist in multiple planes. And possess people. The only thing I can remember it physically doing is. It lifts Ginny over that pool and breaks her neck, mm. right? Oh. oh, yeah. Oh, God, it's so scary. And then <laughs> it throws Emma out a window through a picnic bench. And then, you know, it pulls Haley's chair a bunch of times and then knocks Gemma out with a vase. Oh, God. And I, I forget what even happens to Teddy, but he, he gets set on fire. I remember that. For me, I think it has to be the poltergeist. We're looking at the physical harm of humans versus a portal. And if the Zoom ghost exercises its power through hurting humans, I don't know how it would fare against the poltergeist when the poltergeist can open portals, it can reanimate skeletons. 
we don't see that same power from the Zoom ghost, even though it's so scary. I am literally scared just thinking about it. <laughs> Poltergeist it is. Okay. Okay. So then we're going to move on to our grown men division. Michael Myers versus Jason acting as Pamela Voorhees, his mother. Michael Myers is very good at killing women. You're right. And if we're talking about Pamela Voorhees as the acting body, she's definitely at a disadvantage. It's so strange because both Jason and Michael are the two of perhaps like the Mount Rushmore of slashers that have supernatural qualities to them. So it's strange trying to compare the type of supernatural qualities they have and make it so it matters. They're both location bound is the thing. True. Jason is in Camp Crystal Lake and Michael's in Haddonfield. Both are very location bound. They're now going to go on the road. It has to be an away game for both of them, I guess, because <laughs> like either the one Super of them. Bowl, they have to have a neutral playing ground. Exactly. They need to have, have a neutral field advantage. <laughs> exactly. There needs to be like a house that looks like a cabin that multiple people could sleep in in order for it to be fair for both of them. I feel not at a disadvantage, but I feel like I don't have as much to say about Jason because I've only seen his mom. Although I do think that Pamela Voorhees acts with such strength and conviction that I can see that she is somehow influenced by her son's spirit, which I think makes sense because he does come back in the movies. I don't know what Jason does on his own. So if I'm just looking at this as Michael versus Pamela, even with her strength, Michael can match that strength. And like you said, he's very good at killing women. I feel like he could best Pamela. It'd be different if we were comparing legacies because Jason obviously proves himself by the second, third, fourth, fifth, umpteenth movies that Mm -hmm. he has a level of supernatural strength with his machete and all that kind of stuff. But you're right. If we're going by the rules that we set, this is the first movie we have. And in the first movie we have, it is Pamela as a conduit. And no matter which way you slice it, Michael is a behemoth of a man. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that Michael has mommy issues too. If anything, he'd have even more incentive. (laughs) He'd have even more incentive. Correct. Mm -hmm. Even though I do think they have similar like things because Michael kills his sister for having sex and Pamela is killing these camp counselors because they were having sex. So if anything, I think they'd be drinking buddies. But if you had to pin them up against each other, I think that Michael has that proven vengeance. He's a little more uh, practiced. I feel good about that. But I also feel extra, extra curious about the other Friday the 13th movies. They are super foreign to me. So I feel like I definitely need to watch them. I feel like we need to watch at least until the third because he doesn't even get the hockey mask until the third one. Really? Mm-hmm. What does he What does he have in the second one? Just a sack. It's just like a burlap sack. Oh, now that you say that. A lot of people say that the second Final Girl is one of their favorites. So I feel <gasps> like it's worth watching. Okay, we should do that. Maybe we could do that again this summer. Yeah. Okay. Let us know if you want us to do Friday the 13th. <laughs> it's also funny because I was thinking that there's a whole ass movie on this subject for Freddy versus Jason, and we haven't covered any of the Nightmare on Elm Streets yet. We so have to do that. I have an insistence that we at least do the first three. Of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies? There's many of them, but I, the insistence is we do the first three because that's the arc of their final girl. She... <gasps> 
like, I mean, not to spoil it, but she dies in the third one. So, (laughs) but like, I need you to see all of Nancy Thompson's arc because she's one of the best final girls. And she's not even in the second one. Like, it's really just one in three. But the second one's the really gay one that I told you about. So I want to do the first three Nightmare on Elm Streets eventually. But yeah, I think it's worth looking at a couple of the Friday the 13th too. Because I think after the first one, they get better in pace. They're a little faster. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Okay. Wow. Oh my God. I just got so excited for so many things. Yes. Can you believe, did you ever think I was going to no excited? <laughs> this like makes my heart tickle so much because it's like, <laughs> these, this is such like nerdy fan lore and you're like, oh my God. Yeah. This, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, ah. <laughs> ask me five years ago if we would have be having these conversations and I'd be like oh my God. fucking crazy. Oh my God. What was that one movie we watched that one time we were like watching a movie and we made a compromise for the scary movie we'd watch together. Was it American um, Psycho or something? Might have been American Psycho. Oh, no, it was Silence of the Lambs. Okay. You know what I was actually thinking about today? I was thinking about As Above, So Below and how you loved that because <gasps> of its like lore and stuff. And I was like, oh, we should revisit that eventually because it was like the first horror movie where at least it's like, oh my God, that was good. And I was like, really? Yeah. In a lot of ways, As Above, So Below is a little bit of the beginning of this origin story. Like, I feel like that positive experience where I was really, really into that movie is one of the reasons why I felt like I could say yes to this podcast idea. Because I was like, you know what? If I could do that, I bet there are other movies out there that could pique my interest. Uh Uh-huh. Anyway, let's get back to the game board. Okay, so angsty teen division, really tough fight coming up, y'all. Jennifer Check versus Ginger Fitzgerald. This breaks my heart because I love them both so much. They might be one and two in like my top lady villains Mm. in what we've covered so far. How can they not be? Because they really are on such a similar playing field. They're also like relatable because they come from places where both of us have been. Whereas it's harder to connect with wire villains from Await Further Instructions and Baby Groots who steal babies, right? Like these are two women that I think so many viewers love because they can see parts of themselves and they can see almost a relatability in the crimes that they commit. It's complex. Although I will say, I think... Ginger walked so Jennifer could run and not enough Mm. people have seen Ginger Snaps. So I will give a little bit of deference in that regard because Ginger Snaps is a little bit like of a cult classic that I insisted that we covered early on because it's one of my favorites. But obviously Jennifer's body is a resounding hit for a reason. It's so funny that when you said that, the way I it hit my brain made me think that you were talking about you and me for a second because I'm like, (laughs) yeah, I was probably Ginger because I didn't have any like you know big friends in high school and i was weird and like smart but like not in a way that i was bragging about it and i dressed probably the way that ginger did where (laughs) i feel as though you were not jennifer check in the sense that you were uh, but you were in marching band you were maybe weren't in color guard i feel like you were more central to the operations of your high school even if you wouldn't admit it i love that you perceive me that way I was on homecoming court. Exactly. I do do like to say that I came in second place. (laughs) That is my claim to fame. My mom also says that. She also insists that she came in second place on homecoming court. 
We are a family of second placers. <laughs> Where the people on homecoming court knew my little sister, but not me who was in her grade. I'm just humbling you for a second in terms of like, if you thought you weren't, I'm not. Like, I'm not. So like, like that's where I was just like, I'm that's, nothing. That is such an interesting thing. I think I was in that group of people that, Some of my friends that I still talk to from high school talk about this. Like we were in kind of a weird group where we kind of just like knew a lot of people. See, the thing is in high school, and we can kind of see this too with Jennifer because she's a cheerleader. If you play a sport, usually you're perceived as a part of a more traditionally popular crowd. And whereas some people would like to argue that marching band is a sport, it's not really the same Thing. So I still knew a lot of people from being involved in things. I was not a sports person in high school and I did theater and music, which is a little cringy. If you look at popular culture, I mean, I had a good time, met people, but you were a I'm- lead and I was on stage crew though. Like that's <laughs> what I'm trying to illustrate is that you were Elizabeth Proctor and I was assistant stage crew manager. So like, that's all I'm trying to illustrate with this point is well I feel so flattered honestly I know that I would be the victim of both of these women because if I was in the same high school as either of these women I would have been like me first please I would have been Colin so fucking fast I would have been Colin in Jennifer's body he's so damn likable you you know that's something that we forgot to mention in our scream episode is that Colin was fucking red right hand guy what Colin is Vince (gasps) What? Colin is Vince. Vince in Scream is played by the same guy who played Colin in Jennifer's Body. And I oh. we did not mention that. You wow. remember it now? You see his face? I I do. I feel like his hair is lighter in Scream. I guess it's always easier to be lighter than bottle dye black. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm going to bring in the same logic that we brought in when we were debating Needy v. Bridget, which is... Succubi traditionally beat out werewolf characters. What are your thoughts? I think it was easier to defer to Needy in that situation because Bridget was not an actualized werewolf. Where in this case, Jennifer is going up against a full-fledged ginger lycanthrope. There's a little more veracity in that sense. And here's the thing that leaves me a little bit partial to ginger which you know me is impossible to say because i love jennifer so much is that jennifer relies on a steady supply of boys or girls but people to eat correct where lycanthropes it's a progressive thing like no matter what ginger was going to become that werewolf at the end it was a matter of It took her that month to keep exhibiting all of these symptoms to grow into her like final form on Halloween. She did eat Jason and turn Jason. She did kill Trish, I think her name was. But I don't think that those kills were as supplemental to her transformation as Jennifer needs the blood of boys to stay strong and invincible. We do see Ginger in a little bit of a lull like that where she feels weak and she feels tired and all of those types of things. But I don't know that her transformation would have been inhibited by not eating things. She felt these urges and she felt like she needed to. And that's what drove her to do it. Whereas Jennifer seemed to have a little more power of free will, but that also led to her self-weakness in that way. 
I think Jennifer full charged and Ginger full charged could go ahead and it would be a grisly battle. But because Mm -hmm. Jennifer is reliant on a steady supply of eating other people, I don't know how long Ginger going as a werewolf and then like in her fully fledged form, like would that just be who she is now? She wouldn't go back to being human. She would just be this wolf-like creature. And that's the thing. She tears that guy, Sam, apart limb from limb. And she kills a lot of fucking people. And no matter what, even if Jennifer can like unhinge her jaw and like do whatever, like it doesn't amount for the fact that Ginger is hulky and she's muscular and she like gets real big. I mean, I don't disagree that Jennifer check would put up a fucking fight. Mm-hmm. But like, you know what I mean? That's the only thing that I'm so hesitant to give it to Jennifer on is because yeah. Ginger's transformation was going to be stopped. I think Jennifer relies on her cunning and charm in order to exercise her physical power. Whereas Ginger, the more into her transformation she gets, the less she has to do that. She can just be this physical force and exercise this physicality whenever she wants to get what she needs. So if Needy can fight Jennifer off as a human and Jennifer's a succubus, then I feel like Ginger as a werewolf, I don't know if Ginger would last as long in like a brawl in a swimming pool. I'm trying to think about the relationship between like Jennifer and Needy versus Ginger and Bridget, where at the end of that movie, Bridget is so willing to like eat Sam's blood and binds her blood with hers, where Jennifer bites Needy and that's what like turns her into that. And yet you still see Bridget defending Ginger at the end and wanting to preserve Ginger at the end. Bridget does kill Ginger at the end. And so does Needy. Needy kills Jennifer at the end. Like, they're so similar. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of, like, where their weaknesses are in their relationships. And it's so weird because Jennifer and Ginger both hold the power over their other person, like, literally until their last moment that they're alive and then they're not. It's so hard. I think I'm going to follow your lead on this one. Would you think that I would have chosen Ginger over Jennifer? Like, knowing me? Like, that's crazy. But he brought up a good point. Like, in my head, the succubus always wins. And the werewolf character always loses. But you brought up a really good point in that Ginger is fully transformed by the end of the movie. If we're looking at her as a contender in that form, she's much more threatening than Bridget would have been against Needy. And Jennifer is so threatening and scary, but I don't know if she would have that physical power against Ginger because Jennifer almost needs to gain the trust of her victims before she takes advantage of them. And I don't think that she would have that effect on Ginger. And here's the topping on that cake of a theory. Okay. Jennifer is a cheerleader. And that stands against everything Ginger fucking hates. Like, there is no way that Jennifer would be able to win Ginger over. Because Mm. that's what Jennifer and Ginger rely on, is their ability to win over lesser people than them. But because Ginger already originated as this Stokely character, as this outcast, if Jennifer tried to charm her, she'd be like, fuck you. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, she would not fall for her antics whatsoever. So, yeah, it's Ginger. Holy shit. (laughs) It's Ginger. Are you going to be okay? I'll be okay. I still Is our audience going to be okay? I don't know. We might get hate for this, but like- look. 
I will only accept hate if you've seen both movies. Watch only Ginger Snaps. Watch Literally. Ginger Snaps. Listening to us talk about it, if you've heard that episode, isn't enough. You have to see it. Look, I think that's sound logic. I think we gave it the time it deserves. I could see it going both ways. If you asked me in a month, maybe I'd feel differently. I don't know. I will keep thinking about it. But I think Ginger, regardless, is still a worthy winner of any opponent. Are you okay? (laughs) That was the matchup that I was both dreading and highly anticipating. And it didn't go a different way than I imagined. But hearing myself talk, it was just strange that I came to the conclusion that I did. But I stand behind it. I think my reasoning is sound. Okay, semifinals or semi-semifinals? Finals. Mate, I don't know. <laughs> we have Esther against Black Phillip. <laughs> We're back to child's play, y'all. We We're really are. Fun. Look, Black Phillip could charge Esther, but Esther could just shoot Black Phillip with a gun. But Black Phillip is the devil. But so is Esther. <laughs> Do you think Black Phillip is really going to advance? Here's the thing that has been advantageous to Esther this entire time is that she is a 32-year-old woman in an eight-year-old's body. And now you have the devil in a goat's body against a 32-year-old in an eight-year-old's body. We did see Esther kill that bird. She's not above animal cruelty. True. And we know the devil does take the shape of a crow sometimes. She might be able to kill. I mean, obviously she can't kill the devil, but she might be able to kill the shell of the goat. I feel like she could kill the shell of the goat better than the hand and the entity could have. Yes. And that's what we saw Black Phillip paired against previously. If Black Phillip could kill that Hulk of a man dad from the witch, he could definitely charge Esther pretty easy. Do you think that Esther could be convinced to like write her name in his book? That's a good point. And would that be a version of besting Esther? I think it would. However... Esther doesn't strike me as the kind of woman who loves to support other women. Yeah. And we see that in that coven. It seems like those women at the end, especially are very, they have a thing that vibes and that works and they live together as women and function together as women. I don't think that Esther would want to work for anybody but herself. I agree. I don't know that Black Phillip would be able to coerce Esther because the way that Black Phillip coerced Thomason it's by killing all of her family, but Esther doesn't have one. Oh, so Esther has nothing to lose in that regard. So she'd be like, I'm the baddest bitch here. What the fuck are you talking about? So the only way Black Phillip can best Esther is by, I guess, killing her physically. And he doesn't have any thumbs. And she's a physical being with thumbs. And a body. The hand had a thumb. <laughs> He's also like four feet tall and like 80 pounds. So it's like... But again, if she had the weapons of her choice... Fire, cunning, a gun. Yeah, it'd be one thing if Esther was proven to have a faith system, but she doesn't. I feel like she's sadistic. Does Esther beat the devil? I mean, again, Black Phillip as a conduit of the devil. We haven't seen any evidence from Black Phillip that he can heal wounds if they... Like, do you know what I mean? Like, we haven't seen any evidence from Black Phillip that he isn't existing within, like, a immortal body. The entity of the devil might be immortal, but the body of Black Phillip, I don't know if it has that same supernatural element. I don't know. And I mean, somebody who knows more about how the devil takes shapes might be able to shed more light on this, but... We can only work off the evidence that we have from the witch. Yeah. And the evidence that we have from the witch is that Black Phillip and the witch take away everybody who is important to Thomason in order to break her down and make her prime. 
but Esther does not have anybody that is important to her. I think it might be Esther. I think it is Esther. It honestly seems like she's kind of the perfect storm of things that Black Phillip wouldn't have any fucking control over. Like you said, she has no family, nothing to lose. She has no faith system that we know of. She doesn't care about having a community of women. No. Very anti-women, if anything else. Like, she just wants, like, a daddy. I mean, but, like, that's the thing. If Black Phillip was in any other incarnation, like, the devil would be daddy for her. Right. But because it's Black Phillip, yeah, I don't think so. Okay. All right. Esther moves on. Up next, we have the Harga from Midsummer versus the Ballet Coven from Suspiria. Very interesting. (laughs) An international dispute. Mm, yes. Of drastic proportions. Interesting how art mirrors life. Okay, so the Ballet Coven, I'm still thinking about kind of what we said last episode about how the Harga seemed just so organized. And although the Ballet Coven has a system, there's something I feel like I remember about them just feeling disorganized. Like, I feel like the Harga are way more organized than the Ballet Coven. I don't know if it has to do with they just have like a system that is enforced down to like how old you are, determining what you do when you die. And the ballet coven feels sort of dated. I don't know if it's because the lead witch is so old and not physically capable of much beyond what her powers can do for her. The dance instructor is also older. I feel like all of these witches just seem older and not as organized as the Harga. I also feel like the Harga just have more in numbers than the Suspiria Coven does. And I feel like if they were to step foot on Harga land, that elder would be pushed over that cliff. Like, you're overdue. You're like way overdue. Yeah. And remembering what you said about that powder that they blow in what's his name's face? Christian. Christian. They also have some occult powers, right? We might assume it's a certain narcotic or some kind of herbal fusion that's able to have that result to knock him out. But they do have a couple tricks up their sleeve that might, in addition to their numbers, best the witch coven. I'm okay with giving it to the Harga. I'm okay with that too. I almost feel like the witch coven would go into it cocky in the Harga. There's just something about them that they just... They always know more than you think they know. And that's very intimidating. And I think a very powerful tool. I think they're just always aware of who the strangers are. And I don't feel like a Suspiria Coven has enough strength in numbers or trust in each other that the Harga have made. So yeah, it's the Harga. All right. I vibe, I vibe. Moving on. We have the Cenobites versus the Poltergeist. Holy shit. We have the Battle of Dimensions at this point. Yes. We haven't seen the Cenobites go up against... Another supernatural being. Yes. Like, we've seen the Tethers, we've seen some aliens, but not a ghostly figure. I don't even know what the Cenobites would do to best the Poltergeist. What ends up happening to the Poltergeist in the movie? How do they come out triumphant? Honestly, the poltergeist ends up creating like a black hole and sinks the entire house into the ground and it disappears. Like, it's just one of those things where it ends up like enveloping in on itself after Carol Ann gets gone and they try to get the humans. But I think it's more concerned with consuming what has created an imposition on itself, which is the house. 
and clearing that land so that those like graves can be exposed and all that kind of stuff. Whereas the Cenobites, their location bound based on the box. Again, you know, we have this Blamette configuration, but the Cenobites kind of thrive off being able to torture humans. And while these poltergeist beings were once human, they're not human anymore. And you could argue that they're already kind of like tortured souls having their afterlife be interrupted by having houses built on their graves. I feel like if I'm thinking of Cenobites, the vibe I got is that they are a part of hell. They are a dimension or a couple dimensions, I don't know, depending on the lament configuration of hell. So I feel like running that and being a central figure in hell kind of aligns with the poltergeist. And whereas the Cenobites are localized or like controlled by this box, they still control more. Like they're controlled on earth with the box, but they still exist in this other dimension. Yeah. Whereas the poltergeist, like you said, is localized. It is because of this graveyard, the spirits of this forgotten graveyard on which a house was built. And part of me thinks they don't persist unless they keep being bothered. And if the house gets swallowed up in on itself. Yes. I don't know that they're going to be as vengeful, whereas the Cenobites seem vengeful. Yes. I'm okay giving it to the Cenobites for that reason. Yeah. Honestly, I feel like I can wrap my head around the Cenobites a little bit more. And I'm just kind of having a hard time seeing what the poltergeist would even do to the Cenobites. Yeah, like take them into another dimension. They're already there. They're already there. Like they exist in other dimensions. Whereas the Cenobites, I think, just have more power in the spiritual realm. Yes. And then that brings us to, oh, Michael Myers from Halloween versus Ginger Fitzgerald from Ginger Snaps. This is crazy because Michael Myers loves young women who are just around Ginger Fitzgerald's age. However, she is not your average teen. (laughs) No, no, she's not. And I guess Michael Myers has supernatural powers, but I just don't know if he could fare against a literal werewolf. I don't know that he could. Like, he has his butcher knife, and he is tall and menacing and strong, strong, but we don't really see anybody lose to Ginger besides her sister. But, like, I would argue, and a lot of people have argued, that Ginger let Bridget kill her because she was already like so far gone at that point and she loved her sister and she was like, yeah, just do it. I feel like Bridget would be the only one who could have that power though. Yes. Not that power necessarily, but that influence. I don't think Ginger would be vulnerable like that with just anybody. No, I'm also trying to think of like, what is the six gunshot wound metric comparable to werewolf fighting? (laughs) Like, what's the metric of, like, how much would Ginger have to fuck Michael up before he, like, was done? Because that's Michael's thing, is that he doesn't die. Ginger does die, and Michael doesn't die. True. But looking at them face-to-face in a fight, what do we imagine there? Like, what, Michael Myers would just walk up slowly to Ginger and, like, try to stab her? And that's the thing. I feel like a lot of the ways in which Michael weakens his final girls is by killing the people around her. But like, what is he going to do for Ginger? Kill Bridget? I don't think so. Yeah. Also, Michael is scary and invokes fear in his victims, which not all of them act so well while experiencing, right? 
some of them don't take the situation seriously, or some of them don't make great decisions. But Ginger doesn't seem like she would have that fear. Do we think that Ginger would try to seduce Michael at any point? Or are we assuming she's in full werewolf form? He doesn't seem like the type that would be seduced, but like... Is there ever anything about him besides his knife that feels sexual? He almost seems like a weird, like, anti-sex crusader because of the type of folks that he targets. He just doesn't seem like he would be very interested in that sort of energy. That's the thing. Like, I want Ginger to win, but at the same time, like, Bridget kills Ginger by stabbing her in the heart. And that's what Michael does is, like, he stabs And part of her power with men is that sort of seduction, Mm -hmm. that charm. Michael? Ah, Damn. I think it does have to be Michael. I can also see Ginger being kind of rash. You know, kind of at the end, she does become a little bit enveloped in this power. She's overconfident. Yes. And Michael, from what I've seen in the first movie, always stays very comical and collected, which I think matched up against Ginger's rash actions might be part of what brings her down ultimately. Oh my God. It's Michael. Okay. Wow. All right. So here's what we have. We have Esther versus the Harga. (laughs) Like what the fuck? And then the Cenobites versus Michael Myers. What the fuck? This is not what I thought was going to happen. This is not at all what I thought was going to happen either. I don't know. I mean, we're really giving it our all. Esther versus the Harga. I don't know how she can best an entire community of people. All they would have to do is give her a daddy to trick her and pull her in. Unless. Oh, wait, this is a fist fight, right? Well, I mean, like, at this point, it's just weapons of their disposal. Because we said that they would trick the frat boys by putting pubic hair in their food and then making them fuck their women. Unless Esther is just so charming that she fools the whole cult. The whole cult. It kind of becomes the Danny in a way where she like acts like the perfect May queen and then like... Oh my god, imagine if she is Danny, but instead of organically being initiated, she scams her way in and brings it down from the inside. (laughs) you do like that i think she could do it that's the problem like i think she's capable of it i think she's capable of it because she is known for tricking adults and like that's the thing we don't really see the harga take in new children we never see that happen so we don't know that there is a precedent the precedent can be established that she would not be a sacrifice because they only tend to sacrifice adults true and because she has this eternal youth Mm-hmm. she would always be safe mm. she would kind of she be- might be seen as you know how they have that person that's like an oracle who knows all they yeah. seem to really value folks that have like extreme differences i don't know if he isn't he like part of a long line of oracles i can't remember he's inbred going on yeah. yeah he's inbred even if esther plays the child card for as long I don't even think she needs that long. Like she has a couple years playing that card. And I think that she could be victorious. And then what? She just sets fire to the whole town. I don't know. She could do it. She says a prophecy that all of the women need to sterilize themselves or like be part of that like sacrifice so that she is the only receiver of daddy. Oh my God. (laughs) 
Esther would be able to bring down the Harga. Is she going to be able to bring down the Harga? I think she can bring down the Harga. <laughs> Let's fucking bring her on. Holy shit, it's Esther. Oh my god. Esther is in the final two. So that means she's going either against the fucking Cenobites or Michael Myers. Oh my god! <laughs> what did we do? I don't know, but this is some weird ass shit. Look, looking at this concept feels easy, but trying to mesh all of these different universes is really hard. And I take solace knowing that we are trying really hard to consider as many angles as possible. Cenobites versus Michael Myers. Are they just going to rip out those chains again? Wait, okay, I think I got it. Oh, tell me, tell me, tell me. All right. So we've seen the Cenobites so far paired with the Tether's children, triumphant. Mary Beth and the Slugs, they came out. And then the Poltergeist. Michael Myers, with the exception of the Tethers, who were young children, is the closest thing to the Cenobites demographic, right? They are looking for adults to prey upon. Now, I don't think that Michael Myers would be a successful candidate because, and we talked about this, he's not very sexual. If anything, he has beef against sexual expression. He seems to prey on teens who are expressing sexuality. He kills his sister because she has sex and he wields this knife, which is phallic, but we don't really see him engaging in this like sexual behavior himself. And I don't think that the Cenobites would find in him the BDSM prisoner that they would prefer to find. I'm just trying to think if Michael would be astute enough to pick up the box and figure it out. Because that's the only way you stop them, right? Is by imprisoning them. And the only way that Kiersey was even able to do that was by convincing them that she had something greater for them to take instead of her. Whereas I feel like if four Cenobites just showed up and just grabbed Michael Myers, like I don't know what he could do. Back to the us logic, he would stab them and they'd be like, ooh, goody. You know what I mean? I can also see them literally being like, you're boring, Michael, and walking away. (laughs) Like, you're too vanilla for us. Yeah, like, even if they did bring out the fish hooks and tear them apart, like, they're not going to get any kind of reaction. No kind of pain, no kind of pleasure. He's like this silent, stoic machine. Either way, it doesn't seem like the Cenobites are going to get what they want out of him. Does that mean he wins then? Because they aren't getting what they want out of him, and then they just kind of, like, teleport elsewhere and disappear? Or does that mean that he loses because he's so easily overtaken because he has nothing to give? Here's the thing. Uh Uh-oh, we have a breakthrough? I don't know. (laughs) The Cenobites tend to get off on resistance. And if you're saying that Michael is resistant to anything sexual, then I feel like that intrigues them more and makes them want to torture him more and like really Mm. get down to his level of pain. Because it's easy for somebody like Frank who like enjoys the BDSM type stuff for them to break him down because he already wanted to experience the greater realms of experience or whatever the hell they called it. Whereas if Michael is this unflinching person, does that make them more motivated or bored? Like that's the question. Because we don't really necessarily see the Cenobites say, no, you're too vanilla. If anything, they want to get somebody who is going to be hard to crack because they want to like torture somebody. I don't know. 
Okay. So you raise a really good point. Would Michael be able to figure out the Lamech configuration? But I think he might be smart enough to figure out that he could just break it. Like break the box? Yeah. Can the box be broken? Does that release all the Cenobites then? I don't know. But remember when Kirsty threatened to break the box or take the box or something and Frank freaked out and then she threw it out the window and ran down the stairs and grabbed it? Mm-hmm. Like he seemed to have a reaction when the well-being of the box was threatened. Because I think Frank thought that's what would release the Cenobites again. Oh, true. He knew they were locked up at that point. Oh, so if the box is broken, I thought of it almost as like a portal. If the box is broken, then there is no portal. But if we look at it as a door, if the box is broken, then there is no door. I think that's the better way to read it. Yeah. Mm, I see. I could see Michael being very angry and being like, I break this, but then it unleashes (laughs) all of hell. You know what I mean? In this logic, it feels like the Cenobites... The Cenobites are ambassadors of hell. They are torturing sadomasochistic things where Michael is just this hateful man. Yeah. Who at this point, we do not know to be supernatural. True. I mean, it's over for him. (sighs) So that means we have the Cenobites and Esther in the finals for villains. Which, if we remember, Esther is a... 30-something-year-old woman, it's not as inappropriate. But here's the deal. Esther is definitely smart enough to figure out the box. She is definitely fucking smart enough to figure out that box. And if this is a fight where one of them has to be triumphant, you know she would have her eyes on the prize. And I don't know what the moral ceiling is for the Cenobites, but we don't see them go after kids. I think they're fucked up. But I don't know that they're that fucked up. If she's being perceived as a kid, at least. Yes. So if she has that armor on, she can catch the Cenobites off guard, like she did with all of the other human folks. You could play innocent so well, where it could equally be enticing to the Cenobites, but at the same time, like we have no evidence that they are interested in um, that kind of depravity. Right. Mm -hmm. And even if they were, she of course, can just play the card that she played so well in Orphan, which is make whoever think that she is a young child when really she has a lot more to her as an adult and really crazy motivations. (laughs) It's Esther. I did not think for a fucking second that (laughs) Esther would be our champion. Holy fuck. What the fuck happened? I don't even know. Are you okay? I don't know. Like, part of me is okay with it. Part of me is kind of disappointed. But the other part of me is like, well, we really talked about this a lot. The fact of the matter is neither of us favor or particularly even like Esther. Mm -mm. Like, it'd be different if I was like championing Jennifer Check or something. But I'm right. Esther was somebody that we threw in here because she fit the profile, but like she has just kind of found her way because she just has this perfect armor. Yeah. She is a childlike person who can Mm -hmm. trick, intimidate, infiltrate, and just work Mm -hmm. her way to the top of any organization. And by the time that people realize it's typically too late. That's the thing. I feel as though if it was 
Michael Myers versus Esther, Michael Myers would have snapped her neck and that would have been the end of it because yeah. he has killed kids before. Yes. But yeah, just in this circumstance, she deserved it, but it's mm-hmm. still so strange. <laughs> I saw Esther getting far. I saw her getting far. I didn't see her going all the way, but now that she's here, you know, The Orphan, it's one of those movies that everyone's heard of. It's stuck with you. And I think part of the reason is because of the type of villain that Esther is and the uniqueness of the story and how fucking scary it was and how much it freaked people out when they watched it. And that's for a reason. She is a truly scary villain. And that brings us to... (laughs) I was going to say, so now we have... Esther versus Sydney fucking Prescott. Here's the thing about the Scream series. There's no kids ever. Yeah, that's true. You look at all five Scream movies, there's not a fucking kid ever in any of these movies, except for the fifth movie where she says that she has them, but we don't Mm. see them. There's no kids ever. So we don't know how Sydney Prescott would act toward a kid, especially a little girl that she perceives to be traumatized. (laughs) Yeah, she she would be very empathetic toward Esther. But here's the thing. We also saw her kill her own fucking niece. She cleared Jill Roberts, you know, sent Jules into her fucking dome. Like, that's the thing. Esther is only as protected as she is perceived as not a threat. But the second that she's a threat, Sydney fucking Prescott will kill her own family. It's very true. And since we're seeing Sydney Prescott as Sydney Prescott in the fifth movie, she's way too experienced, I think, to even be super trusting toward a kid, a stranger. Like if she met Esther, like any sort of stranger, I feel like Sydney Prescott has to feel some sort of armor. Well, remember even when her and Gail see Amber like run out with a fake shotgun wound and they're like, mm, do you think it's fake? But like, that's the thing. Amber is like, 1617 and they're already like questioning the legitimacy of somebody their age Mm -hmm. again we don't know in what context a russian orphan would be meeting sydney prescott and dueling it out but we've seen her at least be able to dispatch teenagers but Mm -hmm. we haven't seen her be partial to kids ever So I guess it's the matter of like how revealed is Esther in this situation? Like, is she revealed to be who she actually is? Is Esther going after Sydney's husband? Like, what is it? Even if Sydney gives in in the beginning, I can see her being aware and considerate like Kate. Sydney wouldn't have the barriers that Kate had in trying to convince people that she's right. I think she could immediately get people on her side, even if it sounded strange that she's saying this child is not right. Something is terribly wrong. I still think that she wouldn't have those same barriers and it could have like a better ending. If we're looking at them head to head, if we're imagining them (laughs) head to head, Sydney is bigger and she's more experienced with weapons. Well, I guess I can't even say that. I mean, Esther. You could say that. I think you could say that. She knows how to shoot a gun. She's she's stabbed people. Like formally trained. My only thing was what you were just talking about of convincing. Sydney is like the four or five time survivor of all this trauma. And all of a sudden in her old age, she's convincing children of being. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like sometimes when people have gone through stuff, they're like, oh, yeah, she's real fucked up because of everything that happened to her. And you know what I mean? But like this isn't a PR campaign to be president. Like this is fist fight. Right. If it's a fist fight. I think it has to be Sydney. 
Because look, I'm not fucking giving this whole thing to Esther. Sorry. But also Sydney is strong and she could beat the shit out of Esther. Esther's been bested by a mommy. Haha. <laughs> Even though the mommy that she got bested by didn't even make it past the first round of our heroin bracket, the fact that Sydney is just so weathered and ready, our reigning champion of March Madness is Sydney motherfucking Prescott. I'm happy with that. I'm super happy with that. I'm still like mad Esther got as far as she did, but at the same time, like it's just the way it had to happen. Yeah, it's just the way it had to happen. And Damn, that was a lot. Also, how would like Sydney fight the Harga? Like, I don't know. Like, what would that have even looks like? I don't know either. Again, we gave it our all. <laughs> and I think it was fun imagining these different worlds overlapping and how some of our favorite villains would fare in a different environment. It was definitely an interesting exercise that has left me feeling completely fucking tired and drained. (laughs) And I guess maybe realizing I was a little bit more attached to some of these villains than I thought I was because it really was hard to see some of them go. Until next year. Until next year. Yeah, maybe next year. I could see us maybe doing a smaller bracket, maybe with what we get to cover in this year. Yeah, either that or we have to do a lot more collaborative episodes where we get a lot more characters in there. True. Or maybe do some polls and see, again, like who people want us to cover and all that kind of stuff. Either way, it'll definitely be a different format next year because we can't cover 29 movies in the next year. I guess, who knows? (laughs) Stay tuned. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. No promises, but we'll do something similar next year, hopefully. Well, thank you for tuning in, y'all. If you are interested in keeping up with us and what we are up to and the several things that we are still contemplating and have yet to give answers for regarding what we're planning next year or in the next coming weeks, follow us on Instagram at the horrors podcast with a W and or email us at the horrors podcast at gmail.com. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, anything like that. Yes. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye.